can't be expressed better than that, that Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the one on whom our lives are built, and it's, it's him that enables us to find who we are, what God's created us to be, to be that kind of person and to enter into that kind of life. I want to talk about that some this morning. Before I do, let me first off just welcome everyone here this morning. And those of you who are logged in online, we're glad that you're there as well. Uh, this, well, I guess it was two weeks ago that I called attention to Mitch Thompson, the coach for the MCC baseball team, and they were heading to the college or the JUCO World Series. Yeah, yeah. So they are not back yet. They're going to be back tonight. So just in case, Mitch, if you're online and you're watching this service, we want you to know just how proud we are of you and of your team not just of how well you've done, but the way you've done it. We really appreciate your Christian leadership and your witness. So God bless you, and we're looking forward to you getting back. I want to acknowledge someone else, too, actually a set of people. You received a brochure when you walked in, or at least you were supposed to. I hope that you got one. It has the word artios on the front. That's a Greek word. It means to be thoroughly equipped. Paul talks about how all Christians should be thoroughly equipped for every good work so that we could serve him. This is a three-year commitment. That is, those who enter artios commit to study for three years rather intensively, the Bible and theology, as well as practical ministry skills. Three years, and then beyond that, there's a commitment to serving in and through the church for at least another three years. So the people who make the commitment to get involved in Artios, they've made quite a commitment. And if you open the brochure, you'll see the pictures of those who have just graduated. Actually, we've got one group that graduated last year, but before we could recognize them, something called a pandemic hit. So that got postponed. And then we've just had another group that graduated as well. Both of these groups have worked very hard, and it's all because they want to be equipped to serve Christ and to serve him in and through this church. And so we have a lot to thank them for, and I want to recognize them because of that commitment. I know a few are in this particular service, so if you are one of these Artios graduates, would you stand now? I know, Jonathan, I saw you over there, so, and, okay, the Bolton's back here. I can't see way back there. Is that Kim back there? Kim? Very good. Uh, we're just really proud of you all as well and appreciate the commitment that you've made. You know, as we study the scriptures and study theology, it's not all about filling the head. It's also having the heart moved by truth. In the Christian life, it's not all about what you believe and how you believe. It's entering into a new way of life, to have a relationship with God that is life-changing, it's easy to forget the centrality of that, even if you're a seminary professor. So Daniel Wallace is a, really a very fine New Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was raised in a charismatic church, and he saw some shortcomings in that church, and so he drifted away from it, and he became very focused not on experience but on Scripture. That was so very important that Scripture took the first and most important place. 
And so he devoted his life to studying the scriptures and teaching the scriptures. And so he has done that now for, I think, north of 30 years at Dallas Theological Seminary. But one day something happened that shook his life. His young son was diagnosed with a rare and virulent form of cancer, and it rocked his world. He learned something about his relationship with God at that time. If you go ahead and put up that quote. I found that the Bible was not adequate. I needed God in a personal way, not as an object of my study, but as a friend, guide, comforter. I needed an existential experience of the Holy One. Quite frankly, I found that the Bible was not the answer. I found the scriptures to be helpful, even authoritatively helpful as a guide. But without feeling God, the Bible gave me little solace. In the midst of this summer from hell, I began to examine what had become of my faith. I found a longing to get closer to God, but found myself unable to do so through my normal means, exegesis, scripture reading, more exegesis. I believed that I had depersonalized God so much that when I really needed him, I didn't know how to relate. I depersonalized God so much. This is seminary professor speaking. God became cognitive and not much else, an idea, a belief. But he needed God to be a personal force in his life. Every year, the Jewish people, the ancient Israel, um, Israeli people, would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of the three main feasts in Israel. And so this feast would be every year about the middle of October, and it was something like our Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving, we celebrate God's bounty and God's provision, and we call to mind not only how he has blessed us, but we call to mind his goodness, and we give thanks for it. For many of us, it's our favorite holiday of the year. Tabernacles was like that for the people of Israel. They would go to Jerusalem, middle of October, and they would celebrate the harvest. That's what Tabernacles was about, first and foremost. It was about a celebration of the harvest, how God had provided for the people. And so they would come... And they would acknowledge how God had provided for them, not just this la that last year, but how he had provided for them all through history. And they particularly would call to mind the wilderness wandering. During tabernacles, they would call to mind how when they passed through the wilderness out of Egypt, and so many times they faced deprivation and need, God was always there and God provided for them. And so this was a time to celebrate that. They thought back on how God had, when they were thirsty, provided them water out of a rock. And so part of celebrating this period was the water drawing ritual. This was something that took place every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. A priest would leave the temple and go southeast to the pool of Siloam. He would there with a golden pitcher dip some of the water. 
And he would carry that water back to the temple and he would pour it out at the base of the altar. He didn't do this by himself. The people of Israel would accompany him and there would be songs sung as he would go first to the pool and then back again. This took place each morning until the seventh day, the great day of the feast, when the priest came back to the altar, they would circle around the altar seven times like Joshua did around Jericho. On the first six days, they would circle it once, but on the seventh day, they'd circle it seven times. Now, as they poured out the water, this was an acknowledgement that God had provided for them. He provided rain so that they could have the harvest. It was an implicit prayer that God would continue to provide the rain, but there was also a sense that this water represented more. And so when the people accompanied the priest, they would sing from Isaiah 12, with joy, you shall draw water from the well of salvation. So the water represented salvation. And as you read the Old Testament, often the Holy Spirit of God is depicted as water outpoured upon the people. And so there were all these rich ideas associated with this water-pouring ritual. But I can't help but wonder, surely there were some people there on this joyous occasion who thought, I don't have joy. I wish I knew salvation. Not just as an idea, but I wish I knew it in my life. I wish God would enter into me and change me. I wish God would quench my thirst. Maybe even the priest. You know, the priests were taught that they would find spiritual refreshment, life through the study of Torah by studying God's Word. It wasn't a lot different than Daniel Wallace. It was all about Scripture, reading Scripture, studying Scripture, and that's what priests were taught. I wonder if ever on one of their, those mornings there was a priest who thought, I'm pouring out this water. We're singing about drawing water from the wells of salvation, and I am so thirsty and so needy myself. I wonder if that was the case. It was on that day that Jesus stood and spoke amazing words. He was there in Jerusalem. And usually when a Jewish teacher was teaching, he'd be sitting down and have disciples gathered around him and there'd be conversation going on. But on this occasion, Jesus stood up and spoke in a loud voice so that everyone could hear. Here on the seventh day, he says this, verse 37, John 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. The water represents 
the Spirit, this, this giving of the water, quenching the thirst, comes when Jesus gives the Spirit to those who come to him. The Spirit. Daniel Wallace says that for many Christians, and in fact, for him at one time, one time in his life, his Trinity was the Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Thank God for Holy Scripture, but we need more than a book. We need a personal encounter with the present God. And here Jesus tells us that this tabernacle celebration, this great festival, and this water-pouring ceremony, it is all fulfilled in him that anyone who is thirsty... He raises his voice so that everyone can hear, whoever they are, whatever their story might be, anyone who is thirsty can come to him and drink. That language speaks of a relationship, right? It doesn't speak so much of a religion. It speaks of a relationship. What matters is not that you're part of that water ritual. What matters is that you realize it points to Christ and you come to Christ and you come needy. You come thirsty. You come with an open heart. And then Jesus says, you believe. Whoever believes, out of their innermost being will come rivers of living water. What he means is that you put your faith in me. You come to me for relationship. And what I will give you is the gift of the Holy Spirit in such abundance that it's like an overflowing river from within you. It's interesting how he speaks of it coming from within the believer because the Spirit is a gift and the Spirit lives with us forever. Now, this is life-changing. This is transformative. This is real Christianity. It's not just a concept or an idea. It's an inner appropriation of life. As I said just a week or two ago, Jesus refers to this as being born of the Spirit. Nicodemus came to him, a Jewish scholar and a good man, and he wants to learn from Jesus. He says, we know you must be from God. And Jesus says to him right up front, you must be born from above. You need to be born of the Spirit. Without that, you can't see the kingdom of God. So many people in church have a notional Christianity. That is, they have notions about God, but do they have the Spirit? Have they received that? That's what we want. That's what we're thirsty for. That's what we need, especially in crises. Everyone here has heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of you probably know that a man named Bill Wilson was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very few of you know the backstory. So let me tell you the backstory. Bill Wilson was an intelligent and in many ways a charismatic man. It looked like he was going to have a great career. He lived in New York City, married his, his wife. Her name was Lois. And he began his career, but it wasn't long before he was derailed, and he was derailed by alcohol. He began to drink and drink not just on the weekends and not just in the evenings, but all day during the day. And you might imagine what that caused. He would miss appointments. He 
would call in sick to work. His work wasn't up to standards. He disappointed his wife, Lois, countless times. He began to spiral down. By the time he was in his late 30s, in 1933, he had reached a place, such a low place, that he was admitted to Towns Hospital under the care of a Dr. William Silkworth, who was one of the pioneers in treating alcoholism at that time. There he received new hope. He was so discouraged and so guilt-ridden over his behavior and how he had failed others and, and how his life was going nowhere, that when he heard from Dr. Silkworth that alcoholism is not a moral failing, it's a disease, and we can help you to start managing that, he thought, well, there's hope for me. And he was encouraged by that. He got out of the hospital. He had great high expectations, but it took no time at all for him to begin drinking again. In fact, it was worse. He had to go back to Towns Hospital, but they weren't too worried there yet. Certainly, Dr. Silkworth had dealt with people before, and he knew it was very possible to go through a program and then, then leave and then relapse and have to come back in to, to solidify your new way of thinking and your new way of living. And so he was back, and he went through the program again, and he was released, and he lapsed again drinking worse than ever. Finally, for the third time in a two-year period, for the third time, he had to be readmitted to Towns Hospital. This time, Dr. Silkworth wasn't nearly as optimistic because even after Bill Wilson had detoxed, his thinking wasn't right. He was delusional. He was paranoid. Silkworth talked to Lois and said, you know, I'm not sure he's going to be okay. I think the alcohol has damaged his brain. I don't know that he can recover. You need to consider putting him into sanitarium. sanitarium. Well, she knew that was right. She had pretty much given up hope on him as well, but she didn't have the energy to get him there. And so they just took a holding pattern. Well, through all of this, nothing was said to Bill Wilson about the doctor's assessment, but he could tell by the way Silkworth was talking, he could tell the way Lois was treating him, that they had just about given up hope on him, that he was beyond hope. And so when he got out, he pulled himself together and for months, he didn't touch any alcohol because he knew his life depended on it. He knew quite literally his life was depending on it. He knew that if he continued drinking, he would die from alcohol poisoning. And yet, and yet, he began drinking yet again. He could not stop. This was a pattern Lois had observed over many years. She saw how he would come right to the brink of self-destruction, and then through a kind of animal instinct, he would pull himself back and pull it together, and he would keep it together. 
sometimes for months, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a day. Now he's released the third time. He hung on for months, but then he relapsed once again. His life was spiraling down, and it looked like there was no hope at all. He decided one day that he was going to go to a mission there in New York City that was sponsored by Calvary Church. The pastor of that church, Sam Shoemaker, had worked with many alcoholics. And one of the key teachings was that you had to submit your life and your will to God. That was one of the first fundamental truths. When he preached the gospel, you have to surrender everything to God. And Wilson had relapsed once again. He thought, you know, maybe I need to go. Maybe I need to hear what they have to say. This was really spurred on because he had a friend um, named Ebby, Ebby Thatcher, who had been converted to Christ at Calvary Church. And he had stopped drinking. He had been sober for two years. And, and Bill thought, well, you know, if Ebby could do it, he, he, was, he was Bill's old bink, drinking buddy. He thought, if Ebby can do it, maybe I can do it. Maybe I need religion. And he just thought, oh, I don't know if I want religion. I don't know if I want religion. He was not a religious man. And he, he felt like go, turning to God was like substituting one, one crutch for another, substituting the crutch of religion for the crutch of alcohol, but he thought, maybe I should go. So he took the subway and he got in the area of the city, got off, and he starts walking toward the church, but there are lots of bars between the subway and the church, and he stopped in each one on his way. And he drank and he drank. In one of the bars, he met a man named Alec, and they began talking. And he said, you know, I was going to go to this mission. We ought to go. We ought to go. Let, why don't you come with me? And he said, oh, well, why not? So here are two drunks who show up at the mission, and they, wouldn't, they weren't let in because they were drunk. They wouldn't let them in. They were too loud. They were too disruptive. But then Ebby Thatcher walks up, and he sees his friend, Bill Wilson. He said, Bill, come. You guys come. Let's get something to eat. And they ate and sobered up a little bit. And he said, a service is starting in a few minutes. Let's go down to it. And they went down to the service. And so on a wooden bench, in a room filled with what Bill Wilson said were derelicts, he being one of them, the air smelled of sweat and alcohol. He heard a man preach the gospel and to tell them they needed Jesus Christ. Others stood up and they gave their testimony of how God had put their life back together when they surrendered their life to him. An invitation came. Men got up and went to the front and fell on their knees. And Bill Wilson, without even thinking about it, got up and grabbed his new friend Alec and dragged him up there with him. And he said, I was there on my knees with all the other trembling penitents. And he said, I don't know what I prayed and I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but he said, I do know this, for the first time in my life, I was truly penitent. He accepted Christ on that night. He didn't remember all the details. There were others who remember, but you remember he had been drinking. He didn't remember all the details, but he knew, he knew he was sincere. He accepted Christ on that night. He goes home. He sleeps. He wakes up the next morning. 
Lois gets ready. She goes off to work. And as soon as she's gone, he starts drinking again. And from that moment, for the next three days, he drank constantly. Constantly. He could not stop. He thought, there's just, I don't know what to do. He was at a place, he was depressed. He, he really was almost out of hope. He had just enough to go back to Towns Hospital one more time. On the way, he stopped and bought four beers, drank three of them. He had to do something to stop the trembling. He goes, Dr. Silkworth gives him a room, and there he is alone. His wife's not there. She doesn't even know he, he checked himself in. When she finds out, she's furious. Here he goes again. It's not going to help, and we can't afford it. So he checks into the room, and he's there by himself, and he's never been lower, and all the remorse from his life just crushes his soul. And you think long and dark thoughts at a moment like that. There he was. His friend, Ebby, shows up. And Bill says to him, tell me one more time, what is it? What is it that you did? He said, I turned my life over to God. I just turned my will over to God. Ebby left, Bill's alone, and he says, if there is a God, Show yourself. I will do anything. Anything. And according to Bill Wilson, at that moment, there was a white light that just filled the room. It glowed. And he said that in his mind's eye, he could see himself as if he was standing on a mountaintop. And that there was a wind in the distance that was coming his direction. But he says it wasn't a wind so much as spirit. Now, I don't know if Wilson knew, but the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and it also means wind. So this spirit, this wind spirit comes, and it comes nearer and hits him and runs through his body, and he felt clean. He felt peace. He felt like God was real, and God was with him, and it would be okay. He laid back on his bed after the experience had receded, and he thought to himself, this has to be God. This must be the God the preachers always talk about. That's what he said. He talked to Dr. Silkworth, who didn't quite know what to make of this experience, wasn't quite sure what exactly had happened. Certainly, he had alcohol in his system for a long time. There's no telling what was behind it. But one thing he noticed, he noticed that Bill Wilson was different. He seemed to be at peace. He had a hope he hadn't had before. And so he thought, you know, 
is helping. He encouraged him to continue on these same lines. And then Lois came. She was angry, but she came to see him. She opened the door and she walked in and instantly she knew he was different. Decades later, people asked her, how did you know he was different? How do you know he changed? She said, I just knew when I saw him, I just knew he had changed. He was a different man and I knew he would never drink again. And he never did. And he never did. He wanted to bring this message to other alcoholics. He soon discovered that they don't, most of them didn't have an experience or wouldn't have an experience just like his. With the help of Sam Shoemaker, he wrote the 12 steps. Key principle is you turn your life and will over to God. And with that, Alcoholics Anonymous was born. Bill Wilson, I've got to tell you, was no saint. Some of the character flaws that were part of his drinking years, they continued to be in his life in later years. And the way he boxed some things up theologically had a lot to be <laughs> criticized. But him not being a saint encourages me because I'm no saint either. And it should encourage you as well that an ordinary person with a desperate problem that he could not solve, could not, could not, this man found life in the Spirit. Jesus says, all you come to me and drink. There's this movement toward Christ seeking relationship. But there's also an openness. That's what that thirst is all about. You coming to Christ and being open to what he provides, that what we can't provide ourselves. Then he speaks of believing. So this has to be about faith. As I said, you don't see him, you can't hear him. So it's about faith. And it's not about relationship with Christ and faith in some abstract, detached sense. It's about in the actual events and relationships of our lives. That is, it's, it's coming to Christ each day and learning to connect with him in prayer, surrendering our lives to him. Throughout the day where there may be challenges, there may be trouble, learning to trust him, to put your faith in him, to rely on him. It's not a matter of being some kind of spiritual athlete where you press in and you get so full of God that you're powerful in spirit. It's not that at all. It's if anyone is thirsty, and who's thirsty except someone who's without who feels a deep need, anyone who is thirsty, simply come to me and drink. If you believe, if you have faith, if you'll trust, rivers of living water will flow. That's a promise. 
That's a promise. That's a promise for you if you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior. It's also a promise if you're a believer. And like Daniel Wallace, you think, you know, somehow I've missed God. It's been so depersonalized. My relationship with God's become a concept. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus says, come. We come in prayer and we come in faith. Now, we're going to share the Lord's Supper in a moment. Here's why this is a perfect way of appropriating these things. The text I read, Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When John says Jesus was glorified, he's talking about Jesus being lifted up on a cross, carrying our sins, atoning for our sins, putting away our guilt. It all begins there, what Jesus did on the cross. He gives us life. In John chapter 6, he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, a graphic way of speaking of this intimate relationship we have with Christ. And so when we eat and drink, we are, we are acknowledging, remembering, commemorating the death of Jesus Christ who carried our sins, who conquered them and conquered death on our behalf. It's because he did that that we can receive the Holy Spirit. It's not what you do, not what I do. It's what he did. And so as we take communion this morning, let's reflect on what Christ has done and let's let hope and faith arise. You may not have some dramatic experience, but Jesus gave us a promise Anyone who comes to him and drinks will receive abundant refreshment. The Holy Spirit will be changed within. It's what we want, isn't it? What good would it do to change your way of living if everything inside you stayed the same? Jesus says it won't stay the same. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has given his life for us, that he offered his body and his blood that we might have our sins removed, covered. We thank you for that. And Lord... Too often, as you know, because you know the secrets of our heart, too often we, we are in church, we go through the motions, we hear the songs, and yet we have this deep longing. We want to be saved. We want to be filled. And Lord, we know we have a promise that speaks to us. We ask your grace to lay hold of that promise and come. We wish to do it, Lord, even now, 
as we share in the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we acknowledge that you have been crucified for us, that you are alive, and that you have promised the Spirit to us.